Thanks for that, Jason. Uh, there is a sermon outline, your order of service. Uh, let me actually t- encourage you to take that out. Uh, it will help you follow along as we look at this portion of the Bible. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, uh, and we can have a look at what the Scripture says to us this morning. Gracious God, we do thank you that you reveal yourself in and through your Word. We really want to pray this morning that you help us understand uh, what it means to be a people of faith uh, as we look at the model and the example of Abraham, the father of our faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, what I want to do with you this morning is, as we come to this second half of Romans 4, uh, is very, very simply to have a look at the faith of Abraham. Because uh, what Paul's going to say to us is that Abraham's faith is actually held up as a model of Christian faith. Okay? Abraham's faith is held up for us as a model of Christian faith. A, a, a model of faith that is actually commended to us, uh, held up, and, and, and we are encouraged, as it were, to adopt the faith of Abraham. Now, let me remind us uh, where we are up to uh, in the book of Romans. Uh, Romans 2 and 3 have unpacked for us two things. There is a problem that is inherent in all of us, why we need saving, and then we're presented with God's solution, what God does to actually save. And right at the end of chapter 3, you've got to keep chapter 3, uh, verse 24 and 25, and verse 28 in mind, because we'll keep coming back to that. All are justified freely by faith in the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. By faith in the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. Justification comes by faith and not by works. And so, an absolutely free way to, to experience God's validation, God's forgiveness, God's love, God's acceptance has come to us by way of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's actually done. So that's what's happening so far. And then we looked last week at chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 12. Uh, Paul says, look at the Old Testament. How was Abraham saved? By faith. How was David saved? By faith. How are we saved? By faith. So that's what we've looked at so far, Okay. Now, we come to verse 13 to verse 25, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at this under four headings, okay? Under four headings, you'll see there in your outline, faith alone saves, uh, the object of faith, the obstacle to faith, and the objective to faith, okay? Very straightforward. So here's the first one. Have a look with me, verse 13 to verse 16. Uh, Paul wants to hold up for us Abraham as a model of Christian faith, And so here's the first thing Paul says, verse 13 to verse 16, and he says, it's faith alone that saves us, okay, not works. Look at Abraham, verse 13, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir to the world, but through the righteousness, external righteousness that comes to us by way of faith. And so, uh, remember, it, it's important to know that what's happening in the storyline of the Bible. And, the, you know, there are always some big events. Uh, and the big events of the Bible are, the, are, the, are what I call the anchor events in the Bible. Uh, so <clears throat> they're, they're anchor events because they're such significant events in the Bible because they set the landscape to the entire storyline of the Bible. So the book of Exodus is one of them. You know, God saving uh, out of Egypt. That's one of the big uh, events. Uh, you know, we have those big events in our lives as well, if you think about it. Uh, you know, like for example, if I, if I said to Min right now, Min, uh, do you remember your wedding day? What was the date of your, your wedding? And you would say, 
Okay, now if you, if you can't remember, CC will have an issue. I know he knows the date. <clears throat> okay, but it's, it's a big event, right? Because you remember. So, so here's the thing. In the Bible, there are these big events that shape our, uh, you know, the storyline of the Bible. So the promise to Abraham is one of those big events. It comes in Genesis 12. Because it set the landscape for the entire storyline of the Bible is the unpacking of what God does to bring uh, that promise, as it were, uh, to fruition, to fulfillment. And so in Genesis 12, one of the big events of the Bible, God promised Abraham three things. He Remember, he would be a great nation. His name would be great. And that true Abraham, the, uh, true Abraham and his descendants, the, the world, the nations would be blessed. They would be brought in and made part of the people of God. They will be included into the community of faith. And so the unpacking of the Bible is how God actually does that. And he does it through faith. And so the question here is, did Abraham have to perform some work for God to keep his promise to him? The answer is no. Uh, Did Abraham have to be good enough so that God would keep his promises to him? The answer is no. In fact, the law in the Bible, the commandments of God, actually come 430 years after the promise. Okay? God made promises to Abraham, and as we saw last week in Genesis 15, 16, Abraham believed, he trusted God, and God credited, right? He covered Abraham with validation and approval and righteousness. Faith validates Abraham's acceptance before God, not works. And so this is what Paul says, right? God's promise did not come through the keeping of the law. It came through Verse 13, have a look with me, the righteousness that comes by faith. Listen to this. The way of faith transcends the, the, the way of law. Do you hear that? The way of faith transcends the way of law. In other words, the way of faith is better, it's greater, it exceeds, it excels, it outshines, it trumps the way of law. Why? Look at verse 15. Look at verse 15, the law brings wrath, the law brings judgment, the law condemns because if you've tracked along with this in Romans 2 and Romans 3, the law, right, brings wrath because no one can keep the law. Or as we've seen in the previous two chapters, no one is actually good enough to keep the law. Uh, The idea that we can be somehow good enough uh, to secure God's acceptance in our lives is a myth. It's a nonsense. Romans 3, verse 22 and verse 23. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one can keep the law. No one is good enough. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, I've used this illustration before. It might be familiar to some of you. For others, it's not so familiar. It's a great illustration uh, to use in your workplace, especially with people who think that they're good enough to keep God's law. Um, You might not be someone who believes in God. I often say to people, but let's assume, let's, let's, let's do the hypothetical. If there was a good God, you'd assume that He would actually be morally perfect and that His expectations would be morally perfect. There would be perfect laws that govern right and wrong, the right way to live, right? There would be laws that uh, discerns good and bad. Well, this is what I often say. The, the perfect law of God is like the widest point of the Grand Canyon, right? That's what the, what's, that's what the perfect law of God is like. It's like the widest point of the, the Grand Canyon, which is 29 kilometers across. That's 95,000 feet. The longest jump ever made is about 30 feet by a guy called Mike Powell. He's, uh, he's uh, 
he still holds that record. The average long jump by an athlete is 16 feet. Most normal people can only jump 7 feet. Okay? So, so whether you can jump 30 feet, whether you can jump 7 feet, it makes no difference. Because 30, foot, 30 feet, 7 feet, they're absolutely useless. They will not get you over the Grand Canyon. In fact, the reality is that no one's going to make the distance. No one is strong enough, and neither is anyone good enough. No one is absolutely moral enough in God's economy. Everyone falls short. And that's why Paul says, notice verse 15, the way of law brings wrath, judgment, condemnation. If you attempt to make the jump across the Grand Canyon of God's moral law, you will die. Now, religion and secular culture lives by way of law because religion and secular culture always says, if you are moral enough, if you're good enough, if you're strong enough and fast enough, you can jump and make it across the canyon of God's moral expectations. Now, Christianity says no one is moral enough, good enough, strong enough, or fast enough to make the jump across the canyon of God's moral expectations. Unless God somehow crosses the canyon and comes to save you. Unless God crosses the canyon to come to save you, no one gets saved. That's grace. God's promise to Abraham was not conditional. Right? It wasn't conditional on Abraham trying to jump across the grand canyon of God's law. The way of faith is not just better, it is the way God has designed how His promises to save are received. Uh, and so have a look at the contrast, right? Look at the contrast between verse 13 and verse 16. Right? Verse 13, verse 16, there's a contrast there. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise. What do we read instead? Verse 16, the promise comes by faith to those who have the faith of Abraham, us all. You see the contrast? Now, if this is absolutely, if this is true, right? Let's, let's assume, like, if this is true, that means there are really only two ways to live in God's economy. It means there are only two ways to live in God's world. Because the majority of people actually live by the way of law, right? Religious people do this, secular people do this, uh, living under the burden of trying to always perform in life, always trying to meet the expectations of others to gain validation or love, or acceptance, or credit, right? That's how we live. The way of law says, be good enough, be better enough, work harder, live up to expectations, be godly enough, not just for God, but for the people around us, so that we will be validated and included. That's the way of law. Everyone, the majority of people in our world live like that. Now, the way of faith says, I'm actually not good enough. I can't meet expectations. I fail God, and I fail the people around me all the time. But God in Jesus has given me a righteousness that says, good enough. And I'm going to rest in that. I'm going to trust His promise. I'm going to, I'm going to get off my performance, and, exp- and the, you know, the performance and expectation treadmill on life. I'm going to get off that, and I'm going to rest in the righteousness, the approval, the validation that God actually gives me in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, there are only two ways to live. That's the way of faith. God deals with my failure and sin in Jesus, 
and God gives to me the righteousness of Jesus. And that's why I say, uh, that's why the death of Jesus is so significant in the Christian faith. Because what happens in the Christian faith is a great exchange takes place. Jesus, the righteous one, dies in my place. My sin is placed on Him. He experiences the wrath that I deserve. And, and what He does is Jesus then covers me with His righteousness. God actually credits it to my account, the righteousness of Jesus. That gives me validation, that gives me approval, that gives me forgiveness, that gives me love. And so Paul's conclusion, have a look at verse 16. Therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, you and I. Not only to those who are of the law, the Jew, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham, the Gentile. He's the father of us all. And so this is really what makes Christianity different from religion and the world in which we live. You see there, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace. The principle of grace teaches us that salvation comes by faith alone. Uh, God's grace says, I know you will never be good enough, but I will clothe you with the goodness of Jesus. I know you will never be beautiful enough, but I'll clothe you with the beauty of Jesus. I know you have failed miserably, but I will clothe you with the success of Jesus. I know that your past has been stained by guilt and shame, but I will clothe you, by the, on, you know, with the stainless robe, innocence of Jesus. I know you fall short, but I will clothe you with the righteousness of Jesus. Simply trust me. Trust me. You know, we, we actually live in a world where everyone has been taught to frog paddle in life. Do you know what I mean by that? We've been taught to frog paddle in life. You know, many of you know the story of the frog, right? You tell it to your kids, or certainly if you're a primary school teacher, uh, you've told the kids the story in class. You know, uh, the story of the frog that's actually uh, stuck in a bucket of milk and can't jump out, right? Uh, Popo's going, I've never heard the story. Oh, you missed out as a child. You know, so, so you've got a frog that's stuck in a bucket of milk and it can't get out. And so what the frog starts to do is the frog keeps jumping. And as it jumps, guess what happens when you actually paddle in milk? It churns. What happens? It becomes butter. And eventually it gets out. Milk becomes butter, the frog eventually gets out. Now, a lot of people actually think, you know, that's how life works. If you paddle hard enough, you'll be successful. If you work hard enough, people will accept you. If you perform, right? Frog paddle to save yourself, but also frog paddles to get ahead in life. Frog paddle to be someone in life. Frog paddles to get somewhere in life. Frog paddle to know acceptance. Frog paddle to be praised and recognized. Frog paddle to find security and success in life. Everyone lives like that. We've all been taught to do that. Every sphere of life in our culture is not touched by grace, but law. Did you realize that? And you know the demands of the law are so harsh, right? They are very, very harsh because eventually, eventually someone will outperform you. Someone will out-attract you, out-skill you, out-good you, out-better you. Someone eventually will out-paddle you in life. Paul says there's a better way to live. Grace offers us a different way, the way of faith, trusting in what Jesus has done for you to give you the absolute validation and acceptance and forgiveness and love that you are looking for. The way of faith is a better way to live. 
And so if that's a better way to live, then you really want to understand the nature of faith and what that actually means in the Christian life. And so what happens now in verse 17 to verse 25 is Paul is now going to encourage us to adopt the faith of Abraham because it's a better way to live, right? Faith's object, faith's obstacle, and faith's objectives, okay? So have a look at verse 17. Here's the first one, faith's object. Because verse 17 tells us who Abraham had faith in, who Abraham trusted. Uh, You have a description of the God of Abraham, right? The God that Abraham had faith in. Look at verse 17. As it is written, I've made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom we believe, he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Now, it's generally true, isn't it? That the object of your faith is of ultimate importance, right? The, the, the object of your faith is of ultimate importance. It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that is of ultimate importance. It's true all the time. Uh, the strength of your faith or the confidence you have really depends on the object of your faith. Uh, how strong and secure is the object of your faith? How great is the object of your faith? So, here's the thing, right? You can have faith in something or someone and it might never benefit you. It might be of no help to you if you put faith in the wrong object, right? Let me give you an example. Um, I remember uh, a Christian speaker uh, and counselor, Paul Tripp. Uh, I remember him telling the story uh, of his boys, his sons playing baseball or something in the backyard with a couple of other boys, and one of them accidentally swings the bat and hits another boy in the face, right? Uh, and so he's on the ground, blood is pouring out of his face, and uh, one of Paul Tripp's son actually says to the rest of the boys, everything's going to be okay, don't worry, my dad's a doctor, he'll know what to do, okay? Well, he's actually a doctor in biblical counseling, and not a medical doctor, okay? But, you know, that, that's faith, isn't it? But that's not a faith that's going to help, okay? Let me give you another example, right? If I woke up in the morning... Uh, and I find all the mag wheels on my car gone, stolen. It doesn't matter how much faith I have in my car, my car is not going to get me from home to work. Okay? Now, the reverse is also true, isn't it? Because if I have a fully functioning car uh, with wheels and the engine's working, I can be a very cautious driver, I can be a scared driver, I can be you know, a, a slow driver, but it's going to get me from home to work, isn't it? Even if my faith is weak. Do you ever realize this? Everything hinges not on my faith, but always on the object of my faith, what I have put my faith in. That's how it works in life. How strong and secure is the object of my faith? Whether the object of my faith is strong enough to deliver. Faith is only as good and secure as the object of your faith. Now, which is why Paul says, this is what Abraham believed about God. Look very carefully at verse 17. God made promises, and this is why he can be trusted. Look at what he says about God. He's the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. See? Abraham believed two things about God. He didn't just believe in God. He believed in two things about God. One, God is able to give life to the dead. Abraham believed in God's resurrection power. We know from Genesis 22 verse 5 uh, that when God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son, right? He, and he obediently raised his knife right over Isaac, yet we know he trusted that God would 
and could raise Isaac back to life. And we know in the storyline of the Bible that a son was sacrificed, and a son was raised to life in the Lord Jesus. Uh, The second thing he believed about God, God can create out of nothing. You see there, he saw God as the one who calls into being, calls into existence things that are not. God can bring life where there is nothing. He can bring life where there is, for 80-year-old Abraham and his wife, barrenness, childlessness. And we know he did that with Abraham and Sarah. He gave them children. Um, To trust in something or someone, you need to know that they have the power to deliver. You need to know that they have the power and ability to give you what they promise, which is why it's important to know the God you have faith in. Uh, This is the reason why Abraham had faith in God's promise. He is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. You know, sometimes our faith falters not because God is powerless, not because God is impotent. Sometimes our faith falters because our view and our vision of God or our understanding of God's character is small or deficient. Do you know that? That's the reason why our faith falters. We have a deficient or small view of God. We often teach uh, the kids in Sunday school, right? If you've been brought up in the life of the church, at some point, you know, your children get taught this. You probably taught this as well. You might have learned it. You know, the kids learn that song, My God is So Big. You remember that? You do the actions, right? Sharon's actually nodding, right? I should get her up to do the actions in the kids' song. Okay, she's shrinking back in her seat now. But you know that song, My God is So Big, you know, so strong and so mighty. And then there's that line, There's nothing my God cannot do. We know it, don't we? There's nothing my God cannot do. There's nothing my God cannot overcome, cannot provide for, cannot give. Well, the reality is that most of us actually don't believe it. Faith is only as good and secure as the object of your faith. You must know the character of the God that you have faith in. Did you know that? Now, Abraham, he had had a very elevated view of God. Notice he can create and bring life out of nothing, and he can raise the dead. Uh, In other words, Abraham believed that God could reverse the ultimate power that holds us all captive in life, that makes us afraid, that robs us of love. He can fix the ultimate brokenness, death itself. And, And so it's fair to assume that if God can do that, he can do anything. He can reverse anything. He can correct anything. He can fix anything. There is nothing He cannot deliver us from. And if He can bring life out of nothing, if He can bring fruit out of emptiness, light out of absolute darkness, surely, right, He can not only bring life out of the ashes, He can bring life out of barrenness. And so Abraham believed God in their childlessness. Now, if you're a Christian person and I ask you whether you have faith in God, I think you would say yes. You would. Absolutely, you would say, yeah, yes, I have faith in God. But let me ask you another question, right? What do you believe about the God you have faith in? See, what do you believe about the God you have faith in? What do you believe about the God that you say you're trusting in life? Now, how you actually answer that actually affects your faith. Now, at this point, I do want to say everyone in this room uh, is a person of faith. Uh, Many of you have heard me say this before, believer or unbeliever, Christian or not a Christian, right, religious or secular, everyone is a person of faith. Having faith in something or someone is not a religious thing, right? Because in life, we put our faith in people, possessions, and pursuits. We do it all the time. You are doing it right now. You do it every day of the week, 
right? Every day we live by faith. When you step on the train and bus, you are expressing faith that it's safe and it'll get you there. Not always on time, but it'll get you there. When you turn on, you know, the tap and you drink from the tap, you're exercising faith that the water is drinkable. Uh, When you purchase stuff online, right, you're exercising faith that what you purchase is actually going to be delivered and it's actually going to be what you actually paid for. All the time, we're exercising faith. Living by faith is not just a Christian thing, it's an everybody thing. It is so important that you actually grasp that. Because you will find that in the workplace, people are going to say to you, you know, I'm not a person of faith. And, you know, I I want to say to them, well, that's not true. Everyone is a person of faith. It's a question of what we have put our faith in. Because we all put faith in something or someone. But we are also all people of faith because there are some things in life we deem ultimate, right? Ultimate things in life that we all trust in, depend on, anchor in. There are ultimate things in life that give us a sense of value and worth and security that makes us acceptable, that we make uh, uh, our hope in life. So Christian people, non-Christian people, we all do it. And when it comes to the ultimate in life, there are absolutely two decisive questions, okay? Where or what have you ultimately put your faith in? That's one of the questions. Right, where have you put, ultimately put your faith in? Uh, and the second question that everyone needs to ask is, does it have the power to deliver? Can it deliver you when you're experiencing suffering in life? Can it deliver you when you're experiencing hardship in life? Can it deliver you when work fails, when your marriage breaks down, when you find your friends have left you? Can it deliver? See, people have, have everyone in life has a place they look to as ultimate in life, a place of ultimate faith. But what they've got to ask is, can it deliver? Right, when when life is good, no one actually, everyone says, yeah, my my faith is secure. Whatever you've put your faith in, your people pursuits uh, possessions. But when things are not going well, it's a real test whether, where we have put our ultimate faith, whether it can actually deliver. Now, Abraham didn't just make the God who made promises to him the ultimate object of his faith, Notice he also anchored in those two truths. He can reverse death, he can raise the dead, and he can bring life out of nothing. That's what gave Abraham confidence. What do you believe about God? That's a good question to ask, isn't it? Now, we come now to verse 18, verse 20, faith's obstacle. It was the impossible circumstances Abraham finds himself in that was the biggest obstacle to his faith. So God makes promises to Abraham, you have many offsprings, uh, you'll be a great nation, which means that you have descendants. Uh, and in Genesis 15, God actually says, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. Look up in the uh, night sky, you see the stars, uh, and, and that's what God said to Abraham, right? And so the reality, though, is that Abraham, notice verse 19, faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Since he was about, notice, a hundred years old, and Sarah's womb was also dead. Now, when God made the first promise to Abraham, he was 75. That's Genesis 12. No children. And then in Genesis 15, God repeats the promise to Abraham. This time, he's over 80. Still nothing. No children. Uh, When you get to Genesis 17, Abraham is 99. And still nothing. No children. His circumstances remain the same. Unchanged for 25 years. Can you see the biggest roadblock, the biggest challenge to Abraham's faith? 
the circumstances of his life. The circumstances of his life. Abraham's impossible circumstances was probably the biggest challenge to his faith. The biggest roadblock to him trusting God's promise. The, the obvious barrier to his believing that God would actually give him a child, that barrier was that it was a biological impossibility because of his age, his wife's age. She's been childless all her life, and they are now beyond childbearing age. Now, let me actually tell you what's staggering. In the face of the impossible, uh, I want you to look at three verses, verse 18, verse 19, and verse 20. I'm just going to highlight a few things, but in the face of the impossible circumstances, we read these words. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. Verse 19, without weakening in his face, faith, he faced his circumstances. Verse 20, yet he did not waver through unbelief. Abraham trusted God despite his circumstances. He faced the reality and the facts of his circumstances, which he fully understood, and yet he trusted God's word. He held on to God's promise he believed. Now, I don't know whether you realize this. The circumstances we find ourselves in is always the obstacle to faith. The circumstances of your life that you find yourself in is always the obstacle to your faith, to trusting God's word, to trusting God's promise. Hardship and suffering and tragedy and difficulty and loss and unmet expectations and disappointment, they are always the obstacle to faith, to trusting God. You know, wouldn't it be great if you could say in your circumstances... Whatever you are struggling with in life, being able to say, against all hope, I in hope believed God. Verse 19, without weakening in my faith, I faced my circumstances. Verse 20, yet I do not waver through unbelief. Imagine being able to say that in your circumstances. And we know exactly what Abraham believed, which is why it's so important to know what you believe about the God you have faith in. He believed that God is the one who gives life to the dead and calls them to being things that are not. You see, what you believe today about God in your circumstances is either going to make or is going to break your faith. One author puts it like this, how did Abraham come to such a massive exercise of faith? How did Abraham do it? Well, Abraham weighed the human impossibility of becoming a father against the divine impossibility of God being able to break His Word and decided that if God was God, nothing was impossible. Who am I going to believe in my circumstances? See, who are you going to believe in the circumstances of your life? The God who can raise the dead, bring life out of the ashes, who can reverse the situation, who can bring life out of nothing, who can bring light out of darkness, or will you trust instead your circumstances? Can I say to you this morning, especially those of you who have been, a Christ, who have been Christians for a while, right? You know that the trials and the challenges and the struggles in your life, your circumstances always reveal something about your faith in God, what you actually believe about God. Worth reflecting on this morning. Have a look now, verse 20 and verse 22, because faith has got objectives too. And so when you look at verse 20 to verse 22, right? When we trust God, when we take God at His word, when we have faith in Him, we read He is glorified. Uh, verse 20, Abraham didn't waver through unbelief. He was strengthened in his faith and he gave glory to God. You see there? 
uh, our faith in God, uh, our, our trust in His promises to us, our dependence on His Word actually glorifies Him. In other words, uh, when we express trust in God, it makes much of Him. Right? People begin to see where we have uh, anchored our faith, what we have made ultimate in our lives. That's giving glory to something or someone. Uh, giving glory to something or someone is, is, is really nothing more than ascribing worth and value uh, to that which we think is powerful enough, beautiful enough, strong enough, ultimate in our lives. Faith is ultimately connected to what you are glorifying in your life. What is ultimately the object of your trust and worship in life? <clears throat> Where you are anchoring in the circumstances you find yourself in. Uh, that's true in all of life. Uh, we all know that. Uh, if a relationship is what is ultimate in your life, what you trust for ultimate love, then it's a relationship you're glorifying. Uh, and a relationship is what you will put your faith in. Uh, if money is what is ultimate in your life, what you trust for ultimate security, then it's money you're glorifying. People see that. And money will be what you put your faith in. Uh, if your kids are what are ultimate in life, what you trust so that you might feel fulfilled as a parent, then it's your kids you are glorifying. And your kids is what you put your faith in. And so whether you realize this or not, faith is you, you trust. Where you put your trust is ultimately connected to what you're glorifying in life. And biblical faith glorifies God. It glorifies God as the ultimate object of your trust. Uh, because only God can ultimately deliver. Because only God can give life to the dead and call into being things that are not. But notice very quickly, there's a second objective to faith. Notice verse 22. This is the way. By faith, God credits righteousness. See there? By faith, God credits righteousness. And so you read verse 22. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. It's the way to get God's approval. It's the way to find God's validation. Abraham trusted in God's promise, and God declared him righteous. That's the objective of faith, that God will receive the glory and that you would actually receive His approval. Let me actually uh, draw a few points of application for us to reflect on. And it is worth reflecting on because... Uh, Understanding your faith is pretty important, how it operates in life. So here's the first one. If your faith is only as good as the object of your faith, you really need to know what you believe about God. Is that right? If your, if your faith is only as good as the object of your faith, as a Christian, you really need to know what you believe about God. Uh, what do you actually believe about the God of the Bible? In fact, the confidence you have in God uh, is directly proportional to what you know about God in His Word. There is such a thing as a weak faith. So listen to me, right? There is such a thing as a weak faith. It comes from a weak or shallow view of God. Uh, the reason why we say we have faith in God, but then we live our lives putting our trust in people and pursuits and possessions is because we have a puny view of God, a deficient view of God, and an enlarged view of the power of everything else in our lives. We are faithless, not because we are weak, but because our knowledge of God is small. Let me say it again. We are faithless, not because we are weak, but because our knowledge of God is small. Faithfulness comes from a faith that is anchored in an enlarged view of God. And that only comes when you know God's character deeply in His Word. Do you know God's character deeply in His Word? That's one of the purposes of reading the Bible. 
of growing in the knowledge of God so that you come to know the character of God, to enlarge your faith by having an enlarged view of God. You cannot trust God deeply if you do not know God deeply. Do you know God's character deeply in His Word? Uh, you know, I know many of you read your Bibles during the week. When you read the Bible, there are two questions you want to always ask to help you enlarge your view of God, which will strengthen your faith. The two questions are, what can you learn about the character of God? You know, your parents, when you do your devotion with your kids, one of the things you want to point out is the character of God. So your children learn the character of God, right? What can you learn about the character of God? And what truth about God's character can help you trust in God? You know, we don't just learn, like it's not just an intellectual exercise where we learn about the character of God. We learn about the character of God so that we can actually trust more and more in Him. And so those are two good questions worth asking. What, do you learn, what can you learn about the character of God? And, and what truths about the character of God helps grow your trust in God? They're, they're good questions to ask. Here's the second thing. The impossible circumstances you find yourself in always reveals where you've put your faith. Okay? Who you trust, where you're looking for salvation and deliverance and validation. In fact, your impossible circumstances always reveals what you do and what you don't believe about God. Because sometimes in the midst of our impossible circumstances, we fall into despair. Right? We do. Uh, uh, Sometimes in our impossible circumstances, we run not in a Godward direction, but elsewhere for help, for resolution, for deliverance. Now, we tend to do that because we are ignorant of God's character. Uh, We do that when we are ignorant of the God who says something about our impossible circumstances. We do that when we are oblivious to the promises of God in His Word that speaks to our impossible circumstances. Now, I don't know what are the impossible circumstances in your life right now. Okay, Maybe it's illness that's causing you despair. Maybe it's singleness that's making you feel unattractive. Maybe it's disappointment in your workplace that's making you anxious. Maybe it's injustice and hurt that is leaving you angry. Can I say that there are actually opportunities to grow your faith? They are. There are opportunities to grow your faith. Impossible circumstances in our lives should drive us to discern and discover what God says about our impossible circumstances. They are there so that we might discern and discover the promises of God in His Word that speak to the impossible circumstances in our lives. Did you know that? And only an enlarged view of God can help you faithfully meet the impossible circumstances in your life. Open your Bible. Discern and discover what God is saying about your impossible circumstances. What is He saying about Himself in your circumstances? What is it about Him that He's asking you to trust? My friend Elam, let me share with you his impossible circumstances. Uh, he taught me in Sunday school. He found out very recently that he, uh, I found out very recently that he's housebound because he's got Parkinson's. Uh, what I didn't know was how severe it was, so you know, uh, just before Easter I visited him. Uh, and when I arrived, he, I discovered uh, through his wife, because he couldn't speak much, I discovered that he has something called Parkinson's Plus. Those of you who are not aware, uh, there is no treatment for Parkinson's Plus. So, so here's my friend. His mind is actually functional, but his body is not. He has trouble speaking. In fact, he can hardly speak. 
Uh, he can hardly eat. He struggles to eat. He definitely struggles to breathe. Uh, he's in a wheelchair. He's got to be helped 24-7. It's heartbreaking. But he knows the God who has raised the dead and is able to call things into being that are not. Now, I know that because that's where his faith is anchored right now. Through the little indications and his mumbling, I can tell that's where he's anchored. When we left, we prayed. We read the promises of God from 2 Corinthians 4. And I said to him, because of Jesus and what he's done for us, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 16, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, right? we face an impossible circumstance, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, the impossible circumstances, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And we know it's eternal because God has raised Jesus from the dead. He's called into being things that are not. And so my friend, right, Elam, he's his broken body is not going to be the last word, and neither will be any impossible circumstance you find yourself in. If not in this life, certainly in the life to come. God will ultimately deliver because the God who has raised the dead is able to call things into being that are not. We know He has done that because He has raised Jesus from the dead who died for my sins and has risen for my justification. You see, the way forward, when you meet the impossible, is not to frog paddle harder, which is what we all tend to do. Uh, not to fall into despair. Not to look elsewhere. It is first to work out from His Word, what does God say about my impossible circumstances? What does God promise in my impossible circumstances? What is God asking me to trust about Him? Here's the third thing. The exercise of faith in our lives is actually an opportunity to glorify God and know God's approval, right? It is. A God-glorifying life is a life of faithfulness, expressing faith in the promises of God, expressing faith in the character of God in the circumstances we find ourselves in. You know, when you find yourself in the impossible circumstances, when the circumstances of your life seem to challenge your trust in God, it's actually an opportunity to glorify God, to make much of Him, to, to witness to His sufficiency, to testify to His provision, to show a watching world, this is where I'm putting my faith. You know, remember the Apostle Paul? 2 Corinthians 12, okay? Sometimes we think God doesn't answer our prayer. We find ourselves in very difficult circumstances. Well, you know, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, he prayed for relief for 14 years. And as far as we know from the Scriptures, God never answered that prayer. He left the thorn in Paul's side. And, but we know from 2 Corinthians 12, the thorn was there to teach Paul and to teach us that God's grace is sufficient even in the impossible circumstances. It was an opportunity to make much of the grace and power of God in Paul's life and for us to actually see it so that we might draw encouragement and strength. It was an opportunity to glorify God. My circumstances are painful. I am not delivered, but God's grace is sufficient and the power of the resurrection, Paul says, will carry me through 
That's where Paul anchored, in the God who raised the dead. Right? How can I use my impossible circumstances to make much of God, to glorify Him before others, to point to Him as the object of my faith, my provision, my comfort, my security? It can only happen if you know what it is about God that makes Him worth glorifying, trusting, anchoring in, holding on to. Where we have placed our ultimate faith in the impossible circumstances of our lives is always what we're glorifying in our lives. And so maybe, just maybe, the impossible circumstances in your life is an opportunity God is giving you to trust Him, to grow in your faith, to glorify Him before others, and to know His approval. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we want to come to you in an absolute spirit of humility. Sometimes, even with our faith, we tend to look more at ourselves. We fail to actually look at who you are, the God who has made promises to us. We fail to look at your character. And that's why our faith is weak, and that's why we falter when we find ourselves in the impossible circumstances of our lives. We do want to pray this morning that you might give us an enlarged view of who you are as the God who is not just able to raise the dead and who has raised the dead in the Lord Jesus Christ, but the God who is also able to call into being things that are not. You are the God who brings life. You have brought life into our hearts. You have enabled us to believe. So now enlarge our faith by giving us an enlarged view of who you are so that more and more we might begin to find the horizon of our lives governed by who you are, by your characters revealed in your word, by your promises as revealed in your word. So that when we find ourselves in circumstances that we are struggling with, the greater horizon of your character and your promises might begin to overshadow what we see so that what is unseen will actually begin to lead and guide and shape us. Help us anchor there. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.